Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This universe is weird. So weird, in fact, that we often don't question its weirdness, even though it's right in front of us. We're completely caught up in it. For example, when someone takes a group picture, there's always that person that demands that everyone say cheese. That's obviously a way to get everybody to smile. You can't help but smile when you say cheese. No one is really sure who was first to employ the cheese trick for photography. In fact, in the early days of the camera, it was considered undignified to be captured with any kind of grin. The command from the photographer used to be, say, prunes which is why so many old photos have people doing the duck face. The earliest reference to say cheese comes from a Texas newspaper report in October 1943. Joseph E. Davies, a former ambassador to Moscow, was interviewed and gave away his secret to looking pleasant no matter what the circumstances. Just say cheese, he advised. Davies wasn't the inventor of the phrase, though. He says he learned it from some other politician. Let's try something a little more current. When we enter the full address of a website in a browser, we go http colon slash slash www dot whatever, which is complicated. The story of the URL is very, very complicated, but it breaks down like this. The HTTP stands for Hypertext Transfer Protocol, the set of rules that govern transferring files over the internet. The www is World Wide Web, of course which is where the URL lives. But what's with that slash slash thing? Well, that's a holdover from the computer code that was written for the Apollo missions to the moon. And by the way, the guy who first put this all together is Tim Berners-Lee back in the spring of 1992. He is really, really sorry for all the confusion. And if he had it his way, he would go back and come up with something better. Since we're on the topic of rockets... Why is there a countdown to a launch? Seems obvious, right? You tick down the seconds until the engines fire. But get this, NASA took the idea from a 1929 silent film called Frau im Mund, which translates from German as Woman in the Moon. It's considered to be one of the first serious sci-fi films. For its rocket launches, it features a countdown from six, six, five, four, three, two, one, now. Again, this is stuff that's right in front of our faces that we've just accepted as part of life without really ever questioning what's going on. Now let's extend this to the world of music. There are many strange things that we accept as fact and protocol, but why? Let's find out. 
This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. Hi there, I'm Alan Cross, and this is the third program in the Rock Explainer series. We all participate in practices and customs that, if we stop to wonder why we engage in such things, we wouldn't have an answer. It's just something we do because. Let me give you some examples from the previous two shows. Who came up with the idea of flashing the devil horns? Where did the practice of doing encores come from? And who was the guy to inappropriately scream Freebird at a concert? If you haven't heard those first two shows, you should really go back and check out those podcasts once we're done here. I have a fresh list of mysteries to explain. And let's start with something really fundamental. What is the difference between rock and rock and roll? They refer to the same thing, right? Or do they? Well, yes and no. The term rock and roll predates the music. In the 1600s, sailors used the term to describe the motion of a ship on the open sea. However, by the 1920s, it had become an African-American euphemism for sex, and it appeared in a bunch of songs of the era. Fast forward to the 1950s, when DJ Alan Freed was looking for a new catchphrase. Because he was so deep into the R&B of the day, he knew what was meant when someone sang about rocking and rolling. He also knew that a lot of his audience knew what it meant and that their parents did not. So by calling this new music rock and roll, he was being naughty and subversive. And for nearly two decades, we had rock and roll music. But then in the mid-60s, things changed. It wasn't rock and roll anymore. It was just rock. But what happened? Well, I'll tell you, the music had evolved. The rock and roll sound became associated and intertwined with the music of the 1950s and early 60s. Elvis, Little Richard, Jerry Lee Lewis, and so on. This was music that was a direct descendant of 12-bar blues, something that you could hear in almost every song. Guitar sounded clean and clear. The lyrics were clean, mostly. Some double entendres did slip through. And, most importantly, rock and roll was music for kids. It was played on radio stations that appealed to teenagers, and the delivery system was the 7-inch 45 RPM record. It was evanescent, disposable, and certainly not serious music. Then, in the mid-60s, things began to change. Rock was this heavier, harder, louder, and more complex version of rock and roll. Distortion and fuzz became essential elements. The songwriting and arrangements moved beyond the simple 12-bar blues structure. And it wasn't just for kids anymore. Rock had become serious music and serious business. After years of being criticized as kiddie music, it was now an art form to be respected, studied, analyzed, and critiqued. Credit can go to the Beatles and Bob Dylan, because not only was their music much more sophisticated, but they also released albums. Prior to the middle 1960s, albums had been the domain of adult music, serious music, jazz, classical, Broadway show recordings. But now, thanks to Dylan and the Beatles and a few others, this music was finally being taken seriously, just like those other genres. It was a legitimate, respectable art form. The biggest change came on June 1st, 1967, when the Beatles released Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. This was definitely not kiddie music. And therefore, it could not be rock and roll. This was rock, period, full stop. Elvis was rock and roll. Led Zeppelin was rock. 
Today, rock is the most prevalent term, but now it's often interchangeable with rock and roll, especially if you want to punctuate things with a cry of rock and roll or something like that. The next thing that needs explaining is swearing in music. 50 years ago, it was shocking, just shocking to hear someone curse in a song. One of the very first records I ever owned was Johnny Cash at San Quentin, which was released in 1969. My Aunt Olga gave it to me for my birthday because I loved the song A Boy Named Sue. If you're unaware, the recording goes like this. But you ought to thank me before I die for the gravel in your guts and the spit in the eye because I'm the son of a bitch that named you Sue. Now, that's not some censored radio single. That's how it appeared on the album, which presumably was being bought by adults. The people at Johnny's record label thought that the language is a little strong for fans of a God-fearing man like Johnny Cash, so they bleeped him. Truth is, though, cussing in songs goes back decades and decades. As far as anybody could tell, the first record to maybe appear with a swear word is Old Man Moses by jazz pianist Eddie Duchin. This record came out in 1938, and the featured singer is Patricia Norman. I want you to listen to her carefully. Okay, before you start writing emails of complaint, Patricia Norman is stuttering on the word bucket as in a pail. If this were 1938 and you were listening on a crappy old wind-up gramophone or a cheap jukebox, you might hear something else. And it's because of people's wicked imaginations that this song has gone down in history as the first swearing recording. No, she says bucket. Now, to be clear, there were a lot of raunchy songs recorded. They had titles like New Rubbin' on That Darn Old Thing by Oscar's Chicago Swingers or Hot Nuts by Lil Johnson, both from 1936. And then the Dominoes had a scandalous song called 60 Minute Man in 1951. You can imagine what they were talking about. But no one deliberately swore on record until we come across the Fugs. And I said Fugs, F-U-G-S. The Fugs were a weirdo rock band tilted toward performance art and satire. And in 1965, they recorded a song called CIA Man, and it featured plenty of obvious F-bombs. It's not quite up there with Rage Against the Machines killing in the name, but it's close. And again, this is 1965. So I'm going to play it for you, but um, still got to edit it. Send them out to kill their untrained cousins. The Fugs, the first band to deliberately drop an F-bomb on record. As far as we can document, anyway. Here's another question. Who decided to put an umlaut in their name? If you're unclear, the umlaut is the two dots that appear over letters in certain languages like German and Swedish. It has to do with how you're supposed to pronounce a vowel. Now, technically, they're called a diacritic form of punctuation. But for our purposes, we're concerned with umlauts that have become known as rock dots. 
Now, why would anybody want these dots if you don't need them? Short answer, it looks cool. It looks foreign, gothic, exotic, mean, frightening, evil. And it has become associated with metal bands, although not exclusively. As far as anybody can tell, the first band to put dots above their letters was Blue Oyster Cult. According to lore, guitarist Alan Lanier came up with the idea in 1970. No particular reason, it just looked cool. And since then, umlauts have been adopted by dozens and dozens of other bands for exactly the same reason. There's Motley Crue, Queensryche, Spinal Tap, Green Jelly, Motorhead, Maximal Park, Moxie Fruis, and tons of others. And I'm going to include this band on the list, although they probably have more of a right to use umlauts because their name is Swedish a language that uses umlauts for do you remember? So, in the case of Husker Du, umlauts are necessary, correct, and still cool looking. Husker Du, or Husker Du if you prefer, an umlaut band that actually does things properly with that piece of punctuation. More things to explain coming up, including why do some songs fade out? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is another installment of the Rock Explainer series. I'm trying to shed some light on why rock works the way it does, and also the reasons behind the customs and behaviors that have developed with our music over the years. Next up, why do some songs have defined endings, while others end by getting quieter and quieter until they fade out completely? We might go as far back as classical composer Joseph Haydn. In about 1772, he started performances of what would become known as the Farewell Symphony. As the piece drew to an end, each musician in the orchestra would stop playing one by one, extinguish the candle in front of them, and then walk off the stage. This would continue until there was no one left, and during the whole time, a musical figure was played over and over and over again, and as each musician departed, the volume would, of course, become quieter and quieter. Then we can look at Gustav Holtz and his composition, The Planets, which started performances in 1914. The conclusion featured a female chorus in a room that was offstage. As the piece wound down, the door to that room would be closed, little by little, dropping the volume of what the audience could hear. The symphony ended when the door was fully closed, and there was silence. Okay, fine. But we're concerned about fading music on a record. We can look at an 1895 recording called The Spirit of 76 that featured a marching band. As the song winds down, 
the band marches away from the acoustic recording horn. The further they get from that recording horn, the quieter they become and thus fade out. Have a listen. Okay, look, what do you want from a recording that was made outdoors in 1895? Song fadeouts, as we know them, first appeared sometime around 1950. Before then, recordings were made directly to disc. The goal back then, the philosophy back then, was to capture the sound of a live performance as it happened. So this meant that if anyone made a mistake during the recording, you had to throw out that disc and start again. There was no editing, no overdubs, no fixing it in the mix. Yes, there were ways to fake a fade. All the musicians had to do was play quieter and quieter or move further and further away from the microphone, but that risked picking up unwanted noise in the studio. Here's an interesting example. It's from George Olson's Big Band and is called Beyond the Blue Horizon. This is a recording made in 1930, and it ends with the sound of a train receding into the distance. But in the 1950s, recording studios started changing over from the direct-to-disc method to magnetic tape. If you made a mistake, no problem. Rewind it, wipe out the original take with another. This eventually led to multi-track recording. And this created an opportunity to end a song in a new way. The electronic fade, as it was known, involved turning down the input volume from all the microphones until the song disappeared into silence. Okay, why do this? A couple of reasons. Artistically, it meant that the artist did not have to come up with a definite ending. They could just play the hook over and over again and didn't have to bother coming up with a proper way to end the song. Aesthetically, the thinking was it reinforced the impact of the song, most often the hook, in the mind of the listener. It never really ended. The song just kept going and going and going. It went forever into infinity. You just didn't hear it anymore. There were technical reasons, too. If a master tape of a song was delivered to a record pressing plant and it went beyond three minutes, the engineer in charge of setting up the pressing process would fade the song out beyond those three minutes. And that's because the quality of the audio on the master disc being cut really degraded as you got closer to the middle. So best drop the volume before things started to sound really gnarly. And finally, there were the demands of radio. Back in the 1950s, anything longer than three minutes was considered blasphemy. If you wanted your song on the radio and it was too long, well then, fade it out. The fade also served as a cue to the DJ. The song was ending, so you can talk over the fade out and then segue into the next record. Over the years, different types of fades appeared. There was the quick fade for AM radio. There was the very fast Motown fade, in which the song disappeared very quickly. And then there was the FM fade, which was long and slow. Think, um, what's a good example? Hotel California by the Eagles. That fade goes on forever. The Beatles were big into the fade. After 1966, when they stopped touring, it became a studio band and no longer had to properly finish a song for a live audience. And I point to Hey Jude as an example and the coda that takes three and a half minutes, four minutes to wind down. 
Fading a song has gone in and out of style through the decades. It was very big in the 60s and 70s, not so big in the 80s and 90s, and today it's kind of hit and miss. Here's a track with a long fade, and one that shows the right way for an electronic fade to be executed. The decrease in volume matches up with elements in the song. As the song ends, the fade has its own beginning, its own middle, and its own end. And the result is a pretty successful and satisfying conclusion to a pretty cool song. Here's the next item that needs explaining. Most 7-inch singles have a hole that is much, much bigger than what we see on 33 and a third vinyl albums. That hole for the album has been standardized at 9.30 seconds of an inch. It's been that way since 1948. The hole of the 45 is a full inch and a half. Okay, first of all, why the difference? This goes back to RCA's introduction of the 45 back in 1949. They were the ones to invent it. Their thinking was, listen, we've been listening to songs one at a time since the 78 RPM record was introduced around 1900. That's how people listen to music. So what we're going to do is design a turntable where you can stack single-play 45s on a spindle above the platter. When a record is finished, the tone arm will move out of the way, and the next record will drop onto the platter. The tone arm swings back over again and plays that record. You repeat until all the records stacked on the spindle were played. The bigger hole served several purposes. First of all, if you wanted to play these records, you had to buy an RCA record player with a special spindle. They were the only ones that made it at first. Second, the big hole made it easier for the record to drop into place. And third, the bigger hole spread the torque of the turntable around a greater circumference, which meant less wear on the hole. The main flaw in RCA's thinking, that they had created this new proprietary format that could only be played on RCA turntables, was that other manufacturers started making multi-speed record players. You want to play an LP? Well, fine. Flick the selector to 33 and a third. You want to switch to a 45? No problem. Just change the speed. However, before you could play a 45 on a turntable that had the standard LP spindle size of 9.30 seconds of an inch, you had to partially plug that big hole. And so was born the 45 RPM adapter. The first company to make such a thing was the Webster Chicago Corporation. The first inserts were made of solid zinc and rather difficult to fit into that big hole. Taking them out was even worse because if you did get one in, the fit was so tight that you risked cracking the record. Another adapter maker was a company called Fidelitone. Their solution really wasn't much better. But then Capitol Records took the Fidelitone idea and created an adapter that they called the optical center that was built into the big hole. It was made of a triangular piece of cardboard that covered most of the open space in that hole, but it did leave a hole in the middle for the size of an LP spindle. You could punch it out if you wanted, but it couldn't be reinserted. There were other innovations, too. Some labels just pressed 45s with an LP-sized hole. This brings us to the most famous adapter of them all. It's known as the Spider. This was RCA's idea. Spiders looked like a three-armed galaxy, usually yellow or red, and each was made of plastic. It was easy to snap one in and out of a 45. And here's a cute trick. Each spider had little bumps on it called drive dots. 
when playing stacked records, the dots on the spider on the lower record locked in with the dots on the spider of the upper record, thereby assuring that the records didn't slip against each other. Okay, we're done, right? Well, no, in the 1980s, we had something called the SX2, designed by a Boston nightclub DJ that made it easier to mix 45s while spinning in clubs. Basically, it looked like a big Frisbee that fit over the entirety of the turntable platter. There was space in the middle for the 7-inch single, you snapped it in, and lots of room around the circumference for scratching and slip cueing and other turntablist manipulations. People often ask me, okay, what are those 45 RPM adapters called? If we're speaking generically, they're called 45 RPM adapters. But if we're speaking specifically about those plastic things that RCA introduced, the ones with the spiral arms, it's still okay to call them spiders. Here's a seven inch from my collection that requires a spider. When I was putting this program together, I relied on a lot of questions people emailed to me. People who wanted explanations for a variety of things. And quite a few of them asked, when did it become fashionable for a band to smash their instruments at the end of a set? The answer seems to be a 1956 episode of, wait for it, The Lawrence Welk Show. That's when a guy named Rockin' Rocky Rockwell performed a not-so-respectful version of Elvis Presley's Hound Dog. And when he finished, he smashed his acoustic guitar to bits. I guess this was some kind of commentary on the value of rock and roll music back then. I mean, it was the Lawrence Welk Show. Then we moved to 1964. The Who were playing a small pub in London called the Railway Tavern. The ceiling was quite low. And at some point, Pete Townsend raised his brand-new Rickenbacker guitar too high and smashed the headstock into the ceiling. He was annoyed and decided to make a spectacle of his frustration and hammered the guitar into the stage in his amp until it was nothing but splinters. This seemed to go down well with the audience, so Pete and the rest of the band started destroying their instruments on a regular basis. And in fact, it became their trademark for a while. Then there's the case of Jeff Beck, who got frustrated during a scene in which he was featured in the 1966 movie Blow Up. His amp started to short out, and Jeff ended up trying to destroy it with his guitar. In 1967, Jimi Hendrix set his guitar on fire at the end of his set at the Monterey Pop Festival. A little lighter fluid, a match, and boom. And then he broke it to pieces. We can look at Kiss in the 1970s. Paul Stanley theatrically went through many, many guitars as part of his show. In the early 90s, when Nirvana was at their peak, Kurt Cobain went through many, many guitars. He also wrecked as much of everyone else's gear as possible. Who else has been into this sort of mayhem? Well, Trent Reznor and Nine Inch Nails. I've seen them wreck their stuff many times. Phoebe Bridgers killed her guitar at the end of a Saturday Night Live performance. And the all-time champion guitar smasher. And this is according to the Guinness Book of World Records, so it must be true. The all-time champion guitar smasher is... Well, it's not Pete Townsend of The Who. It's Matt Bellamy of Muse. When the band's 2004 tour wrapped up, and this is the one in support of the Absolution album, it turned out that he had totaled, destroyed, ruined 140 guitars. 
A few more things that need explaining right after this. I have a couple more things for this Rock Explainer episode. And here's a question that deals with CDs that were sold in the 1980s and 1990s. If you look at the liner notes, or maybe even on the disc itself, you'll see a combination of three letters. For example, AAD, ADA, ADD, and even DDD. What does that mean? This is something called the SPARS code. It appeared in 1984, about a year after the CD was introduced. And the sparse code indicates the method in which this disc was recorded, mixed, and mastered. The A stands for analog, and the D means digital. The first letter corresponds to the type of audio recorder used. If it was recorded on old-school magnetic tape, that's analog, so A. If the music went directly to a hard drive, then that's digital, hence D. The letter in the second position denotes what kind of audio recorder was used in the mixing process. Again, if it was mixed from tape, that's an A. Mixed from hard drive, that's your D. And the letter in the final position tells us the type of mastering used. CDs are a fully digital format, so the final letter for compact discs is always D. But if it's a piece of vinyl, it would be A. Recording studios were very analog for a very long time. It wasn't until the very late 1980s and early 90s that they started switching away from massive reel-to-reel machines to hard drive systems linked to a digital audio workstation like Pro Tools. But there were experiments with full digital recordings as far back as 1973. Sony released its PCM-1 system in 1982. Okay, so who was the first to release an all-digital rock album? At some point to a 1978 album entitled Bop to You Drop by Roy Cooter, who used a special 3M machine that recorded digital signals to tape. However, there was no such thing as a digital mixing board at the time, so while it was recorded digitally, it still went through two analog steps for mixing and mastering. We could also look at the English Beat and their 1981 album Special Beat Service. They also recorded digitally, but everything beyond that was analog. There were plenty of other albums like that, Stevie Wonder, Christopher Cross, Fleetwood Mac, and a bunch of others. I do know that Peter Gabriel recorded Security, his fourth solo album, digitally. When it came out in 1982, there was only vinyl, so at best, it was an AAD recording. But when it was released in 1984, it was full DDD, digital from start to finish, and quite possibly the first ever. The last question for this edition of The Rock Explainer is going to be a contentious and emotional one. What sounds better, vinyl or CD? Wow, it's a a tough one. From a sheer technical point of view, the CD captures an audio signal with more accuracy. We can go through things like bit depth and sample rate and all the math surrounding something called the Red Book Standards and the psychoacoustic properties and abilities and capabilities of the human ear and brain to make the case. Technically, compact discs and Blu-ray audio and any number of lossless high-resolution codecs are better than vinyl. Technically. Hold on, though. Maybe you've done A-B comparisons with the same song switching from CD to vinyl, and you've come away with thinking that the vinyl version sounds better. It's warmer, it's smoother, maybe. 
It might be. But comparing songs this way is like arguing over which car is faster based on the kind of seats it has. It all depends on the source material. If you have a recording that was lovingly created, mixed properly, and mastered with vinyl in mind, then it is going to sound great. Mastering for vinyl means subtly tweaking different frequencies to bring up the best in the format and to hide some of its flaws. For example, there are physical limitations when it comes to bass in vinyl. It's just not possible to store deep, deep, deep bass in the grooves of a record. You get too low and the stylus can't cope. It'll jump out of the groove. To compensate, the mastering engineer will pay very close attention to the bass parts of a recording, augmenting things so that vinyl's inability to reproduce it is replaced by a warmth that many people find appealing. CDs, on the other hand, can handle any kind of low frequencies, or high frequencies for that matter, that you throw at it. But because the compact disc has different characteristics and abilities than vinyl, the music needs to be mixed and mastered to match those characteristics and abilities. If you do not mix and master specifically to vinyl, and specifically for CD, you are going to get music that doesn't sound as good as it should, regardless of the format. And vinyl does have problems with noise, rumble, hiss, clicks. Those are artifacts of the mechanical nature of vinyl playback and may contribute to its feeling of realness and warmth. Meanwhile, properly constructed CD recordings do not suffer from those noise artifacts. However, CDs can have an issue with harshness, a high-frequency shrillness that can be really off-putting. But CDs that are mastered with love, that shouldn't be a problem. I have some CDs from the 1980s where they didn't bother to remaster them for the new format. All they did was take the master tapes they used to press the album and transfer that to CD as is. And the results are terrible. I have a copy of Elvis Costello's My Aim is True album, and it sounds awful. It's filled with so much background hiss, and the bass is gone, and the trebles are rolled off. It just, it, I can't listen to it. Then again, I have some vinyl records issued since 2001 where the label did not bother to change the equalization of the master to something that worked on vinyl. Again, you're taking something that was made for a CD and shoehorning it into vinyl. Again, awful, especially with all the distortions and the low frequencies. So, comes down to this. Does vinyl sound better than CD? Well, it all depends on the individual records and compact discs that we're talking about. We cannot make a blanket statement one way or another. You just can't. Just go with what makes you feel the best and what you enjoy the most. Here is the closest thing I have to an all-analog recording. In late 2001, the White Stripes booked time at a studio in London called Toe Rag, and the attraction was the studio's ancient eight-track recorder, its pile of analog tape, and its analog console. If you go to Jack's Third Man Record Store in Nashville or Detroit, you can buy a vinyl version of the Elephant album that I'm pretty sure is old-school AAA, so analog recording, analog mixing, analog mastering. I'd play something for you to hear, but there's no point because in the creation of this program... Everything, at some point, passes through a digital stage. Let's just hear what we got.
And that concludes Volume 3 of this occasional series called The Rock Explainer. Again, if you want to hear Volumes 1 and 2, they are available as podcasts wherever you get your downloads. Just look for Rock Explainer 1 and Rock Explainer 2. And while you're there, grab any of the other programs that you might want. They're all free. There's my website, ajournalofmusicalthings.com. It's updated with cool music news and info seven days a week. Get the daily newsletter. It is free. We can also meet through Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and even TikTok from time to time. And if you have any questions for the future volume four of the Rock Explainer series, send them to alan at alancross.ca, and I will put them on the list. I will start my research. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. Talk to you next time. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. 